You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, open to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be reading Isaiah chapter 9, this beautiful passage that we often remember during Christmas season. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Can you name all 50 states of America in alphabetical order and their capital cities? Can you name at least 10 American presidents and what they're mostly known for? What about narrating three military, uh, three military endeavors in which America was involved with to bring world peace? Do you get excited about military stories of sacrifice for the country and of selfless dedication of our veterans to protect our freedom? If you answered yes to any of these questions, well, you are a patriot. Well, I've visited the Capitol building in D.C. this past uh, Thursday. And it was a beautiful thing, a, a wonderful building, wonderful history. I learned many things about this nation, and I was grateful for it. Because patriotism is a valuable virtue. And something that I have grown to appreciate in the past six years that I have lived here in America. Because Brazilians, I don't know if you know that, but they tend to be patriotic mostly during election season or the World Cup, in which final is happening right now, and I'm here preaching for you. <laughs> but that's the extent of it. That's the extent of our patriotism, politics and soccer. But patriotism is only a virtue when it's not a vice. You see... Different nations, they have different reasons to be proud of their heritage. And that's one of the beauties of God's diversity and the way that he created in his uh, infinite design for us humans. We are different, and that's good. 
However, because our different tendencies for sin, the virtue of national admiration is transformed into the vice of national alienation. And that leads us to international contention. We no longer are satisfied with the wonderful gift of this national identity that we have, but we must now pursue our nation's preeminence over other nations. History testifies to the rise and fall of many empires, monarchies, and republics, nations, countries, rulers, and leaders who fell into this pit of extreme nationalism. And guess what? Israel was one of them. We saw last week how God established his covenant with David, promising that his reign over Israel would endure forever. His name would not be forgotten because from David's lineage, the everlasting kingdom of Israel would be established. And that was God's word. And God keeps his promises. Thus says the Lord, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Your throne shall be established forever. Just like Moses' role as prophet sets the bar for all other prophets, David's role as king starts the rise of the monarchy of Israel. The nation who had David for king and Yahweh for God, Israel was on the road for this total domination. They were in this road for world conquering, unmatched influence, unwavering power. So David conquers these neighboring nations, and he establishes Israel as the regional power of the day. They were the big dogs to be beaten. Nobody could beat Israel. The Israelites had all the more reason to be patriotic on their nation and rejoice in what the Lord was doing for his people. And that was great, and that was wonderful. However, we know from the books of Kings and Chronicles that Israel started caring more about their own grandiosity instead of following God's good law, which only led them to division into kingdoms north and south, and also later into the exile into the hands of other nations, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. So both north and south, Israel and Judah, failed to remain faithful to God's good commands and were no longer witnessing the whole, to the whole world the dominant power of God's name and righteous law. They were caring only about their own name, therefore came punishment. However, God in his great justice, but also mercy, once again brings punishment matched with hope for his people. In the midst of this oppression and exile from other nations, in this tumult of international conflict, prophets of the Lord hear his voice, and speak his words. So we think of names like Isaiah that we read today, names like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, Hosea, Jonah, and others. These guys become the spokesmen of the Lord, constantly reminding Israel of their identity that truly comes from God and not anything else. And these prophets continue to point them to the hope of one day Israel, the nation, being restored. As for the surrounding nations, those that are oppressing them, the prophets also bring words of judgment should they remain in their opposition to God, to the God of Israel. Even while these nations are being used as a tool in God's hand, as a rod of discipline for his people. 
Isaiah, the prophet that we are reading today, his name means the Lord has saved. He is a prophet that God raised to warn his people of the imminent threat of this future Assyrian invasion that was coming. It's imminent. Assyria is growing. His power, the power of that nation is expanding. And Israel was going to be taken over. So Isaiah is raised as a prophet to warn them. His role is to encourage kings of both north and south to remain faithful to the Lord and to rest secure in his promise of deliverance. So imagine an efficient traffic controller who carefully receives commands from supervisors on the weather and tries to prioritize where the plane is going to land, directing thousands of pilots at the same time to follow a course to prevent accidents. That's what Isaiah is doing. He warns kings, the people, everyone that belongs to the people of Israel about the coming of great storms and crashing obstacles if they do not heed to his command, to his word, to the prophecy. Our passage today, however, it's not in the midst of these warnings. This passage is a glimpse of hope in the middle of great amounts of warnings from the Lord. Isaiah started prophesying about a son to King Ahaz back in chapter 7. And this son would be a representative of the presence of the Lord, Emmanuel. That would be the name of this son. And would challenge Assyria should they dare attack Israel. The son of King Ahaz would be there to protect them. And then comes chapter 8. Chapter 8 frustrates this expectation. The readers are expecting a mighty man who is going to rescue the people because it's God's presence. But for the presence of the Lord is not what they expected. The presence of the Lord brought destruction. Look at verse 6 of chapter 8 with me. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6. This is what will happen to the son of Isaiah in this context. Because this people has refused the water of Shiloh that flowed gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep onto Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will feel the breath of your land, O Emmanuel, O presence of the Lord. So the presence of the Lord, the son of Isaiah in this context, brings destruction. You see, when there is a refusal to enjoy God's great source of refuge, which is his word to King Ahaz, his presence does not go away. It just shifts its purpose. The presence of the Lord is for both destruction and redemption. It simply depends on our position before his promise. King Ahaz refused to be part of God's great sign by not asking for one. Isaiah in chapter 8 demonstrates by faith that having his own son as the example of Emmanuel, destruction to the people. And now in chapter 9, the prophecy of a son continues because God always keeps his promise. 
God is keeping his promise to send a final governing man, an individual who is himself God's presence for redemption and for judgment, depending on one's position before him and what we are going to do with this man that is to come. Whether we choose to partake on the promise of God or not, he will keep it. The promise of redemption stands no matter what nation seems to be thriving or what gloom of anguish may be over us. The promise stands. A child will be born. A son will be given. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. That's the promise. But let us consider this promise of Isaiah 9 and how the presence of God brings us, people of the 21st century, great hope of redemption today. So let's consider first from how this presence of the Lord brings us from tribal animosity to global inclusion. From tribal animosity to global inclusion. Look at with me in verses 1 through 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So verses 1 and 2, they're setting a tone of contrast. We see phrases like former time, latter time, darkness, light. So Isaiah's prophecy here moves beyond the immediate context in which he is writing to his audience, to the current judgment that Israel is about to go through, and he's looking past that, to the light that is to come, to this latter time. Now when we go to John, he's speaking from this latter time, he echoes Isaiah in a sense when he says, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 3, 19. So Isaiah speaks of the light coming to the world. John speaks of the light that came into the world. The darkness of Israel in their animosity, tribal rivalry, and the failure to abide by God's law is now being contrasted with this future hope of this light that John is talking about that shines in the darkness. Not only for Israel, though, for the whole globe. A renewed Israel that goes beyond the Jordan to Galilee of the Gentiles. The darkness of the surrounding nations who waged war against Israel will now join the light born from Israel, for the light overcomes darkness. All they have to do is look at the light. See the light. You see, nations who see the light, they are no longer different from the light, but they are part of the light, and they enjoy the indwelling of the light by being included in the light. In the former days, Israel multiplied in contempt, and they could not proper shine this light. But in the latter days, the better Israel perfectly shines the light and multiplies the one nation by the inclusion of many nations. The better Israel is the light that shines in darkness. When I look at you and when I look at me, I see this promise being fulfilled. 
Oh, you Gentiles. Oh, you Galilee of the nations, you and me. The light has shone on you. <laughs> North Americans, South Americans, Europeans, Africans, Asians, all those spread all over the world who have seen this great light are now part of the one nation that he established, the better Israel. I remember the day that I received my U.S. citizenship. It was a very special time knowing that the lengthy process that I had to go through with my wife was done. It was over. I could finally say, I'm American. And that was a special time, raising that flag and saying, yeah, it's done. It's finalized. I don't have to go through this again. But infinitely sweeter was the moment that the Father made me a citizen of heaven. By the cleansing of my sins with the precious blood of his son. I was not waving any flags. I was just contemplating the son, Jesus Christ. My earthly heritage may be Brazilian. My earthly citizenship may be American. But my everlasting identity is in the better Israel. For I have seen the light of Jesus Christ, the promised son. I was born again into a greater nation, into a better nation, into an everlasting nation. All of us who by repentance and faith in the son that was promised here in verse 6. Therefore, we who have by repentance and faith have seen the light. We are included in the people of God forever. But you may be asking, how do I know? If I have seen the light or not. How do I know if I am out of darkness and I am included in the light? The Apostle John answers that in 1 John 1, 6-7 when he says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all Sin. So how do we know if we are in the light, if we have seen the light? We know because the evidence of seeing the light is having the cleansing of Jesus' blood covering our sins, causing us to walk in fellowship with one another. Because of our sins being forgiven, there's no more reason for division amongst ourselves. There should be no tribal animosity among the citizens of one nation. There should no, be no fighting, no crumbling. No animosity whatsoever amongst the people of God. Our former allegiances to Zebulun and to Naphtali in the text, to Judah and to Israel are replaced by a true and greater allegiance to Christ, the better Israel. There's no better way to evidence our oneness in this one nation of God than being part of a local church, of being part of the people of God. Every local church in which its members are bound together in their confession of faith in Christ and come together as they gather, they are embassies of this one nation, true, better Israel of God. Every local church this morning as they gathered to worship Christ, they are embassies of the nation of God. And who is its king? Christ Christ is our king. He governs our lives. And as members of this one nation, we follow him. We worship him. We obey him. This promise also gives us great hope in evangelism. The presence of God, Emmanuel, among us, his light, is the means by which the success of our witness is guaranteed. 
The light that we shine is the light of the gospel of Christ by the power of the Spirit. We rely on the great source of light to the nations, our Jesus. And we faithfully go through all the nations, through all Gentiles, all Galilee, preaching Christ who was born in our context. As Isaiah was preaching Christ that will be born, we preach Christ that was born. We are equipped and prepared with every possible means of grace to preach boldly, knowing that the promise of global inclusion is his idea and not our idea. We may create strategies. We may set up plans and budgets. We may raise new ideas. We may craft new catalogs, new statistics boards about world engagement and reaching the nations. But reaching the nations is not a task to be finished. It is a command to be obeyed and a promise to be believed. We may think that we have enough energy and power to reach all the nations and have all the numbers jot down to the teeth of how many people are following the Lord. But little do we know that He is the one accomplishing that, not us. But we must obey. We never stop shining the light until the light himself comes again to reign over the true Israel forever. On that day, the day that the light comes back, there will be no division of nation, tongue, tribe, or kingdom. Because every nation, tongue, tribe, and kingdom will bow before him, the only king of all. The presence of God gives us hope of redemption because it takes us from tribal animosity to global inclusion. Secondly, it brings us from oppression in battles to the joy of eternal victory. From oppression in battles to the joy of eternal victory. Read with me verses 3 through 5. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad with the divided, when they divided the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling, tramping warrior in, in the battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. You see, there's great pleasure in relief. I know it's summer, but I know it's winter, but imagine being the summer and being a runner, and you run five miles, you get home, what's the first thing you do? You drink water, cold glass of water to relieve the hot and sweat that you are experiencing. But you drink so much, after five glasses of that cold water, what do you do? You run again. Where? To the restroom for another relief. Because relief brings pleasure. So verses 3 through 5 gives us a picture of this futuristic relief that is to come when the child is born in verse 6. What is this relief? Great joy. They will receive joy. They will rejoice before God over the relief. What kind of relief? The fruit of their labor, verse 3. The breaking of the oppressor's kings, verse 4. And the extinguishment of the need for battle, verse 5. Notice the progression in the text. The harvest and the division of spoil in verse 3 brings us back to Genesis, where God curses the ground, making the toil of Adam's hand agonizing and labor-intensive. 
Now the yoke, the staff, and the rod of their oppressors of verse 4 brings us back to Moses and to Judges when the Lord in all his might delivered them from slavery and oppression from Egypt and from the Midianites. The boot of the warrior in the battle and the garment rolled in blood in verse 5 takes us back to the battles of Joshua, the battles of Saul, and the hope of victory that they finally found in King David. Work, oppression, war. The awaited child prophesied in verse 6 is the cause of the joy in verses 3 through 5. From Adam to Moses to David. This child will fully restore the joy of his people. There is victory to come. The audience of Isaiah, they were experiencing all this as Isaiah is writing this. Experiencing the realities of these verses. And now when they reach verse 6, they can have a glimpse of hope. The hope that Paul talked about in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope... Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Their belief had to be set on this promised child. One who would increase their joy unending. One who would bring final relief. So if they had hope about the future, how much more should we? How much more should we have hope of this child? Because we have the child speaking himself. We open his word and he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And again he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, because Christ came, there's reason to rejoice for us. Even in our work, even in our suffering, even in our battles. We toil day and night. We labor to bring food to our tables. For what reason? We suffer mockery and we feel like we're living like foreigners in a different land. For what reason? What joy is there in fighting a battle over and over and over again? The same joy that Paul tells the Philippians. Do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. So that in that day, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Christmas is the season of joy. Jolly, jolly, jolly Christmas. It's the time that everybody smiles and everybody seems to be the most generous that they've ever been. Whether people recognize this or not, such joy and generosity reflect the result of the birth of Christ and his presence in our lives. Christians are to be glad and they are to rejoice in the labor of our hands because it is God's means to provide for us personally and collectively. We are to be glad in the midst of oppression of all kinds 
because it is God's means to showcase His faithfulness in securing our faith and witness to a lost world. We are to be glad in the midst of battles because it is God's means to renew our hope of redemption and the victory to come. Christian, don't give up. Don't hesitate in your faith. Don't think that the oppressions of this world, the persecution that you see on the TV and the news of war can ever, ever shake what Christ has done on the cross. It cannot even come close to the reward that awaits all those who believe in Christ. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. We belong to a greater and better nation. We have a greater governor, and it is to him that we now turn in our last verses. So far we have been through from tribal animosity to global inclusion, and then from oppression in the battle to joy in eternal victory, And lastly, the hope of redemption, the hope of the presence of Christ brings us, turns us from wagers of war to servants of the Prince of Peace. From wagers of war to servants of the Prince of Peace. I don't know about you, but the build-up of this series, of this Christmas series, is causing me to be very, very expectant for Christmas Day. Not because I'm going to open gifts, but because we'll be here worshiping Christ. As we have been searching the pages of the Old Testament together and contemplating the fascinating truths of God's great plan of redemption that he himself brought to a people, my heart is overflowing with this excitement, with this expectation to finally get that day to celebrate that the child is born. And this is the kind of excitement that Isaiah, I believe that Isaiah is having as he's penning verse 6. I just imagine him penning this verse with a big smile and excitement, even tears of joy, knowing that the suffering, the pain, everything that they're going through will be done when this child is born. And I also believe that Luke can relate to this excitement when he writes, For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. When the Prince of Peace came and they had the privilege of writing about it. Well, how exciting is this? How awesome is this? And the prophet is now, by the inspiration of the Spirit, united to all the saints of the world through all the ages, contemplating the coming of this child by faith. Isaiah is now outside his own historical context, not in a trance, not with his eyes closed and contemplating it, but in truth, in faith knowing that Jesus will come. This child then, for to us a child is born. This child is not the son of Ahaz of chapter 7, or his own son in chapter 8. This son, this child is God, God's own son, the promised Messiah given to us, the people who saw his light. So let's read together verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, that the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This child is a son. 
a historical human male. See how easy it is to define women, to define men? A historical human male given by the Lord to be the source of light, the joy, the one that will deliver his people. He is the one that will end the war that we saw he begun with the serpent in the garden. He is taking upon his shoulder the price of our wage, as the text says. Isaiah describes this child as governor, heir of David, the one who upholds the monarchy without end. So the promise is true. It's just not David himself. It's this son, this child. At the same rate that his government increases, so does his peace. His throne will have no successor, for he will uphold it forever. Justice and righteousness are the pillars of his rule. His government will be like no other government. Justice and righteousness will happen in the government of Christ, not in anybody else's government. His government will be like no, nobody else because it will be perfect. A commentator says this, the, perfect, the perfection of this king is seen in his qualification for ruling, wonderful counselor, his person and his power, mighty God, his relationship with his subjects, everlasting father, and the society that his rule creates, prince of peace. He comes as the final confirmation of God's zeal for his own name and glory. He comes because God keeps his promise for his own name's sake. Because he said he will do it, he did it. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he recognized this position that Jesus had, even as being conceived in his mother's womb. And he said this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and he redeemed his people. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days that we may serve him without fear that we may serve him that we may have peace that we may no longer have to wage this war, this constant battle against the curse of the serpent, but that we can finally rest in his peace. The God of Israel has sent the better Israel. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. peace. He is the King of verse 6. He is the child that was born. And that is not news, brand new news for us. But this is good news for those who have not yet recognized that he is the Prince of Peace. Well, whether it's 4th of July or the World Cup Finals, as it is today, or Christmas Day, as it will be next Sunday, it doesn't matter what day it is or what special day do you hold dear in your heart. I beg you, hear this, O sinner. Repent of your sins and believe in the King Jesus. 
If you have not yet recognized Christ as your patreon, which is the Latin word, Latin word that we get patriot, patriot from, do so today. Let Jesus Christ be the reason for your patriotism. Not in anything else other than the better Israel. That you may rejoice and that you may know and that you may can recite his word like we can the national anthem. If you have not yet recognized Christ as your Lord and Savior, do so today. Join the everlasting reign of King Jesus, the one who unifies earthly nations unto himself. Recognize today that your security is not in earthly kings or in presidents. There's no greater joy than being a patriot for the nation of better Israel. You might be walking in darkness like we have read in this text today. You might be walking in darkness together with the rest of the world. But today, you have heard Jesus preached. You are without excuse. Therefore, you have seen a great light. A child is born unto you. A son is given to you. His government is eternal, and his name is Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, holy one, lamb of God, prince of life, Lord God almighty, lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David, word of life, author and finisher of our faith, advocate, the way, the truth, and the life, Lord of all, I am who I am, son of God, son of man, Messiah, savior, the cornerstone, king of kings, righteous judge, light of the world, head of the church, morning star, son of righteousness, chief shepherd, resurrection and life, horn of salvation, governor, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. He is the one that you have to call Lord, not anybody else. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, unto us a child was born. Jesus Christ came and he established his kingdom forever. The true and better Israel is here as we gather and as we exercise the keys of the kingdom and as we hold fast to being the embassy of this one nation. People from all sorts of backgrounds, all ethnicities, all languages. We look different. We speak differently. But we have one king, Jesus Christ. And this morning we worship you. This morning, our only objective is to look to the light and see and know that the promise was kept. Father, with Isaiah, we are joined together to worship the son that came, the son that was promised, and the son that was born. Father, we pray that as we go out from here and as we prepare our hearts during this week for Christmas, that we may understand that Jesus is the source of all light. Father, that the light of Christmas the star that we put on top of trees is a person, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, born in a manger who came to save sinners, take them out of darkness and bring them into his everlasting life. We thank you because you established a better Israel and you will continue to keep your promise by establishing it forever upon the second coming of your son. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.